Good morning. I believe, according to the weather forecast, it's going to get very cold again tonight, <clears throat> but not as cold as it was earlier in the year. Uh, I don't know whether you can think back, but there was one morning when I got up to go out in the car and I had to scrape ice off the windscreen. <clears throat> and it wasn't just frost. The frost had melted and then refrozen, so it was hard, solid ice that I was hacking off the windscreen. But anyway, I mean, we, we had to replace our car in the last year. Um, the other one got written off in an accident. And so the new car has this wonderful new feature. So after I'd spent 20 minutes scraping the ice off the windscreen, my hands were absolutely frozen, even though I had gloves on. I got in the car, started the engine, and an alarm noise went off. And a light came up on the screen saying, warning, and then a thermometer, it's cold. <laughs> yeah, I think I knew that. I mean, that's a really useful thing, is it not? I'm looking forward to see if it warns me to put sun cream on when we're in a heat wave. <laughs> now, the exciting opening sequence for my talk today. For some reason, this didn't work last week for Graham. Graham couldn't get that to work on his overheads last week. I don't know why. <clears throat> now, I, I need to clear up an under, a misunderstanding because you might have come here this morning to hear me talk about Paul and Barnabas. But everybody I've spoken to about the fact that I'm speaking today on this subject has said, oh, yeah, we love Barnabas. We know all about Barnabas. Well, what's the point of me telling you about Barnabas? I mean, we know it's all about our wow, pow, and whatever. So why should I talk about... I'm going to tell you about somebody else. <laughs> I want to tell you about a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph's dad died when Joseph was still quite a young man. He always knew that one day he would inherit his father's farm, but he never really wanted to be a farmer. He was more of a businessman, an entrepreneur. He very quickly trained up members of his staff to run their own departments. He showed the importance of feeding the land with manure and rotating crops to get the very best results. He was a good teacher, and the farm was soon running very efficiently. So he was free to expand his whole project into something much bigger. He diversified into livestock as well as crops. The farm was successful and profitable, largely due to the way he trained and supported his staff. Farm workers liked to come and work for him. He would reward good work, and even if something went wrong, rather than criticize, he would come alongside his workers and try to work out a way to put things right again. He would employ people who were known to have stolen from previous employers. But because he showed faith in them, many became trustworthy. He expanded the farm further and further. Neighboring farmers would respect him and look up to him. He would give little gems of advice. He would always encourage them that they were doing well. He would even help others out. He would buy land that sometimes he didn't even really need, just so that his friends could have some needed cash. In fact, one piece of land he bought was a really steep sloping 
ravine down into a, a down to a riverside. Nothing could be grown on its its surfaces because it was too steep. The only livestock he could keep there were goats, and goats were not profitable. But he even employed a man to look after those goats, even though he would be paying him more than he could ever earn from the goats. Well, one day he saw a crowd of people walking past his farm, so he, he rushed over to ask them what was going on. It's Jesus, they said. He's coming to speak to the people. So, well, Joseph had heard a lot about this man, and he'd never actually heard him speak, so he thought he'd join in the crowd. He was inspired what he heard, by what he heard. Everything Jesus said excited him. He just wanted to hear more and more. You know, after a while, Jesus stopped speaking and people started bringing around food. Joseph wasn't expecting to be fed. It was amazing. And the food was really good. There was bread and there was fish, a delicious lunch. He was so enthralled by the experience that as people drifted away, Joseph just sat there thinking over everything he'd heard. And after a while, he saw some men coming around clearing up the rubbish and picking up the leftover food. Thank you, he said to one of the men. I presume you're the catering team. But then he was told, no, these were Jesus' closest friends and the food had been provided miraculously by Jesus. It wasn't a pre-organized catering facility. After this, Joseph went to hear Jesus speak as, as whenever he could. And he was always telling others, you must come and hear this man. It's amazing what he can tell you. The disciples got to recognize him. And they came to expect him to be in the crowd, sharing some kind of kind words with someone. I imagine them, they, they would point him out to each other. Look, the encourager's over there. He's a great support, always offering to help. He was devastated when he heard that Jesus had been arrested and was horrified that he was treated so cruelly and crucified. What could Jesus have ever done to be dealt with so cruelly? The greatest man and teacher Joseph had ever come across. So he was eager to be there on the day of Pentecost when Peter spoke wonderful words of Jesus' resurrection. Joseph was instantly a total believer. Everything made sense to him. Jesus was God. Joseph was one of the first to be baptized that day. He joined with thousands of others meeting together every day to learn more about living in the way, breaking bread together, sharing their possessions. He soon heard that the apostles were wanting to help feed and clothe those who had no money, and people started to share their possessions, sell things, sell their fields, sell their homes to help this work amongst the poor. And Joseph thought, maybe I could sell my goat field. Perhaps I could get a bit of money. Maybe that would help. And then he had another thought. He went to see his friend Jethro, who owned a neighboring farm. And he called out to him, Jethro, how would you like to buy my 24-acre barley field? Jethro thought Joseph was joking. That barley field was rich with lush soil and was clearly very profitable. Why would Joseph want to sell it? But he was astonished to realize that Joseph was serious. 
Of course he would buy the field. And he paid a good price. And we read about Joseph in Acts chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. But actually, I should have read. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So yes, I have been talking about Barnabas, but I wonder how many of us knew that his real name was Joseph. I was talking to Graham after he spoke last week, and I told him I was speaking about Barnabas. Well, no, he said, I hear you're speaking about Barnabas. I said, no, I'm going to be talking about Joseph. He immediately said, oh yes, Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas. So I'm sure there are one or two of you who realized, but I suspect not many. Do you have a nickname? Some of you might know that I don't like to be called Andy, because when I was growing up, Andy Pandy was on TV. <laughs> and some of my friends, well, one in particular, would call me Andy Pandy when he wanted to annoy me. His name was Balm. I used to call him Barmy. But nicknames are frequently rude or unkind, cheeky, fatty, ginger, four eyes. I was also called Armstrong by a cub leader because I was so weak and feeble. <laughs> but Joseph was called Barnabas, son of encouragement. What an impression he'd made. But these two short verses threw up all kinds of questions for me. You see, if we read a couple of earlier verses, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So why was Joseph, or Barnabas, the only one mentioned by name? Apart, of course, from Ananias and Sapphira, who were named for a completely different reason. But it made me think, how much was a field worth? I mean, was it more than a house? I mean, I would have thought, if you sold a house, you deserve to be mentioned in this list. Maybe Barnabas had sold a particularly large field, a particularly profitable field. Or was who he was more significant? So I tried to imagine who he was and how he might have come to this point, why he was singled out, how he, became, how he came to be known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He clearly was a positive influence but we don't actually know when he was first noticed. So I made up this story, but it could be close to the truth, who knows. What is clear as we read on in, in Acts is that Barnabas, however he came to this point, was a very important figure in the growth of the early church. In Acts 9, when he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. 
<clears throat> I love war films and spy films. Probably because I'm such a coward, I like to pretend I'm the, the hero in the film. But then you get the film where the hero turns out to be the villain and the villain turns out to be the hero. People change sides and you don't know who to trust. I wonder if you've ever seen a film where you want to cry out, don't tell him, he's the traitor. Oh, you idiot. Why did you do that? Well, can you imagine how the apostles must have felt when Saul, who was the most dangerous enemy of Jesus' followers, came to them saying he now was one of them. He wanted to be on their side. <clears throat> was he trying to trick them, only to hand them over to the authorities later? But Barnabas trusted him. We see throughout references to Barnabas that he wasn't known as the encourager without good reason. He could see the good in people when others weren't so sure. He believed Saul. He trusted him. He could see his potential. And he was able to convince the other believers, if Barnabas says he's safe, then he's okay. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. How quickly Saul, as he was still known, grew from being an enemy to an accepted member of the family to becoming a major spokesman for their cause, someone to protect and care for. Barnabas was clearly an even more valued figure in the, in the early church at that time. In Acts 11, we read that a number of new believers had gathered at Antioch and were sharing what they had come to believe. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The disciples realized these new believers needed support and guidance. So it was Barnabas that was selected to encourage them. <clears throat> News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. But then what happened? There was so much potential at Antioch that Barnabas needed help. And who did he want to help him? Saul was the man he wanted alongside. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So clearly, when this year starts out, Barnabas is the leader and most certainly the mentor of Saul. At the end of the next chapter, 
There's reference to Barnabas and Saul returning, presumably to Antioch, from a mission in Jerusalem. And we hear that they've now added John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, to their team. At the beginning of chapter 13, we read that there are now five leaders in the church at Antioch, including Barnabas and Saul. So the time seems right to the church for Barnabas and Saul to be sent off under the Holy Spirit's direction to a new work. Later, in chapter 13, Saul starts to be referred to as Paul, and he also starts to take the lead in a number of situations. Then, towards the end of the chapter, we read that Paul and Barnabas are invited to speak. Every time before that, it's been Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul. But now Paul and Barnabas, as they were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things. The student has become the teacher. Paul is the one people want to hear. And Barnabas appears to be happy to step back. How rare that is. So often a senior person wants to keep the upper hand, keep the new personality in his place. I've even seen it in churches. An individual with great gifting is blocked from using their gift. I've seen great friendships broken by unnecessary competitiveness. But Barnabas is showing great humility. Paul is now clearly the leader. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take, to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So Barnabas and Paul did separate in the end, not because of competition, but because Barnabas saw the potential in John Mark and Paul thought he would probably hold them back. Maybe Paul just didn't have the same patience to work with John Mark. He felt John Mark had let them down. He might be a liability. Acts 13, verse 13, just says that John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. We don't know any more than that. But clearly it meant a lot more to Paul. But Barnabas was prepared to spend time with John Mark, to mentor him into the man he became. And who he became was important. It's understood that John Mark was the author of Mark's Gospel. Another very positive outcome of this disagreement was that two missionary journeys took place instead of one. It became a very healthy parting, a good model to follow. One mentors another until the student can mentor someone else and the first mentor can move on to another. In fact, I'm involved with something similar to that on the canal. I'm on a team giving guided walks. I'm considered to be an expert, although I still feel like a newcomer. So when I lead a walk, another member of the team will shadow me until they're ready to lead a walk themselves. 
Paul also later must have accepted he had perhaps been too hasty in not wanting John Mark with them, as he clearly values him. In Colossians chapter 4 we read, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. He mentioned him again in Philemon. But more importantly, we understand how strongly Paul feels about him in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Kevin Lehman is someone I came across in reading up for this sermon and I found his comments summed up what I wanted to say. Mark must have undergone significant character enhancement since he had last been with Paul. And Paul had grown in his capacity to forgive and recognize the sanctification process in others. It's a beautiful picture of love, grace, perseverance, and restoration. And he continues, Here we have this man, John Mark, who clearly messed up in his abandonment of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. In many cases, a man like this might might have tucked his tail between his legs and never been seen again. How easy that might have been. But instead, Mark ends up becoming so much more than a failure. God uses the time Mark has alone with Barnabas to mold him into a champion of the early church, and a dear friend of the man who once rejected him. How good is God's process of sanctification? It's also clear that the disagreement over John Mark didn't spoil the long-term relationship between Paul and Barnabas. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul places Barnabas' needs on the same level as himself, basically claiming that in spite of criticism to the contrary, they should both be financially supported and not be required to earn a living that would keep them from their full-time mission. Such a practical request. Neither of us should have time to find part-time work. We need funding to carry out our full-time mission. I wonder if there's anyone you need to connect with again after some issue that's gone on for far too long. Someone Paul felt was unreliable and a time waster became the fat person he found to be most helpful. What relationships have we had that we've allowed to go wrong, maybe for a trivial reason? Can we put that right? At least start the process of putting it right. Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. We need to be positive, each other's. Do we have positive nicknames? 
If not, can we do something about that? How will you be remembered? I wonder if you know the story of Alfred Nobel, the prolific inventor. Amongst other things, he invented dynamite, initially used for mining and nothing to do with killing. But when his brother died, it is said that obituary writers thought it was him and wrote that his legacy was that he invented explosives. The merchant of death is dead was one headline. Nobel was so horrified to be thought of in that way that he bequeathed his estate to establishing the Nobel Prizes. His nickname changed from the merchant of death to the founder of the Peace Prize. It's never too late to make a better contribution to the lives of those around us. Nobel managed it even after he was thought to be dead. Are we encouragers? Or are we gossips? Sometimes it's more fun to be a gossip, but gossip can be so harmful, while encouragement can be such a personality builder. When someone comes with, to us with an exciting new idea, it's so easy to put them down. Oh, we've tried that before. It doesn't work. We think we're helping to help, helping them to avoid disappointment. Yet our comment can be so destructive. We need to learn to be better listeners, slower to jump in with responses which can be negative. And if you're an older, more experienced person, do you use your knowledge to encourage others? Or do you sometimes try to show off that you know best? Are you prepared to learn something new, even at your age? And if you have less experience, do you seek out someone who can help you grow? Or do you struggle on pretending you have it all together? It takes a lot of courage to admit we need help, yet many folk would love to have the opportunity to help you. We need to be aware of our needs and to seek help. We also need to recognize the needs of others and to see how we can support them. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching.